What would you do with your life if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed, what would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of global Swedish design and inspiration brand Dream Life and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people like you to chase your own dream life, whatever that means for you. Many years ago, I wrote down a dream on paper that would one day bring Swedish design to the world and create beautiful, inspiring and meaningful products that would bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to leverage everything I've learned to help you dream big and to create a global movement to inspire 101 million people to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode will dive deep into the power of dreaming and share real insights and practical ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Your Dream Life podcast. I'm thrilled you're listening, and today we got another amazing guest. As you may know, I'm a little bit obsessed, in a healthy way, to work on my habits. I know for sure that it's so much easier for me to achieve my dreams and goals when I have habits that supports my dream life. And you may also know that I love learning and reading, so I always read everything that has to do with habits. And in March, we are going to focus on creating habits to support our dream lives in the Dream Life Coaching Program. I'm so excited. Today's guest was introduced to me via a mutual friend. And when I saw she had released a book about habits, I bought it straight away. And here she is on today's podcast, Dr. Rebecca Ray, the author of Small Habits for a Big Life. This kind of title makes my heart sing. The book is about release the self-sabotaging behavior that is holding you back one habit at a time. Change is not about grand statements or sweeping gestures. It's about chipping away a bit at a time at the habits that hold us back. Dr. Rebecca Ray knows about the power of small habits to make big changes. By introducing small changes into her own life, she transformed her career as a clinical psychologist to become one of Australia's most effective communicators on matters of the mind. Rebecca has helped many members of her large online community and her clients to do the same. In today's super inspiring chat, Dr. Rebecca breaks down the process for us and explains how we can override the part of the brain that seeks pleasure and comfort, say ice cream and wine, and activate the parts that tolerate some discomfort for the sake of long-term goals. For example, an hour of study instead of an hour of TV. Small Habits for a Big Life clears the way for you to embark on your own path to change and provides exactly the right amount of support along the way. I loved this chat so much that I invited Dr. Rebecca to be our superstar speaker for March in the Dream Life Coaching Program. So if you're in there, you are in for a treat. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Rebecca Ray. I am so excited to have you on my podcast. 
Christina, you're not more excited than me. So let's just get that out there. I need to fangirl left, right and center all over you because I absolutely love your work. Oh, that's so, so kind. Thank you. Thank you. That's so lovely to hear. I have been reading your book, Small Habits for a Big Life, and I was just so inspired. I love habits. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we get started, I would love to ask you, did you have a dream as a child, something you wanted to do or become or be? I did. And this is such a really interesting question because the dream is what I'm living now. So I, that's wow. Wow. That's big to realize. I had a dream when I was little of being a writer and I, it's not a real job, right? People, it's not a real job. And so I went and got a real job and I became a clinical psychologist and I never thought that I would be a writer. I mean, you're a writer as long as you write, but I guess I had a dream of seeing a book that I had written be published and sit on shelves. And just the other day I was walking through Sydney airport and saw two of my books on the shelves in Sydney airport. And so that dream is now a reality, but I I would never have predicted it actually would have come true. I love that. Isn't it a best Excuse me. Isn't that just the best feeling when you see a book at an airport store? Because that's where I buy a lot of my books because that's when you have a few extra moments to actually look through a bookshop. It never gets old. I don't know whether listeners would actually believe us, but honestly, it never gets old. I go everywhere there are books being sold. I will go and look at the shelves to find my book first. And it just makes me excited every time. Yeah, absolutely. And now when I know you, I always go in and I rearrange a little bit because I oh, think that's it. <laughs> when I see some friends who have written books, I'm just like, mm, maybe they need to be eyesight. And, you know, I have these kind of merchandise in me and then I take photos and put it on Insta, et cetera. It's exactly what I do. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm so glad we're shelf mates and all my friends are lined up beside my book. Oh, I love it. Before we get in to talk about your amazing book, Small Habits for a Big Life, I would love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit about your journey. We have listeners from all over the world, which always is so fascinating that when I look at the stats, I'm like people from, you know, 180 countries, which just blows my mind. So maybe not everyone knows about you yet. So I'd love to just get a little intro on your journey. Sure. I started off at school. We had a careers night when I was in grade 10. So I was around about 15 years old at the time. And I decided on that night that I wanted to be a psychologist. I don't even remember that there was a psychologist speaking. I think I just thought that being a psychologist would explain to me exactly why humans do what they do. And I thought that that would be really interesting. But then I finished year 12 and I I went straight out of school into university studying psychology, but I was a very anxious teenager. So I would have been 18 when I started university. My self-worth was low and I felt like I needed to do something to prove that I was good enough. I don't know that that was ever a conscious thought, but I can tell you that in hindsight. My grandfather was a private pilot and he had his own aeroplane. He was my best friend. And he said to me, if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. And I believed him. That's actually rubbish, listeners. Like, please know that that might've been true for him. It was not true for me. So I decided that I loved flying with him and I thought I would get my private pilot's license and maybe that would fix my anxiety. Maybe it would make me confident. 
So I went ahead and I got my private pilot's license and it did not make me confident. I was still just as anxious as ever. I still felt like I wasn't good enough. So I decided that the answer to that was to do more flying and in fact, make flying a career. So I got my commercial pilot's license. I got my night flying rating. I got a multi-engine rating and I got an instructor's rating. And I won a scholarship from ANSET, an airline that's no longer functioning, to do more flying. Wow, that's so impressive. Yes and no, Christina. I mean, honestly, we need to admit that flying did not fit me. Now, the way that I know that is because I wanted to vomit on the drive to the airport every single day. I actually left psychology for a time to do flying training full time, but it made me so incredibly anxious. So I am someone who's really comfortable with words on a page. I'm really comfortable talking about feelings. Obviously, I'm a psychologist. But at the time, I was then forcing myself to do something with visuospatial skills and mathematics by flying a small piece of tin through the sky. Now, I never failed a flight test, but it just violated so many of my life non-negotiables. You know, I love routine. I like going to my desk every day and doing fairly the same thing. And the things that change is what I create rather than necessarily what my day looks like. Whereas with flying, everything changes every day. I felt like a huge failure and I had to find the courage to tell my grandfather and my parents that I didn't want to fly anymore. Now, it's not like they were saying, you have to, you decided to do this, so you're going to do this, so you have to go ahead. They just said, look, fine, do whatever you want. But I still felt like a failure. And so I kind of got over that and I returned to psychology and I got my professional doctorate and I then went into work for the government and I treated military personnel. So I kind of fell into treating post-traumatic stress disorder and then I started my own private practice and spent over a decade treating police and other emergency services personnel and current serving and retired military personnel. And of course, depression and anxiety and all those types of things that just show up as part of the private practice world. And here's the next part of where I just completely did something against my own internal boundaries. So I thought I would be in clinical practice, Christina, until I was 70. I thought it would be what I would do for the rest of my life and managed to burn myself out by 35. <laughs> That's good experience. Then you can help people, right? <laughs> no, right. So I did too much of it in a too short a space of time. And I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I was left with my world upside down, honestly. I mean, I joke about it now, but I walked away from psychology having absolutely no idea what I would do with the rest of my life. And kind of with no energy, I was exhausted and I had to put myself back together emotionally while also working out how I was going to pay my bills. I didn't want to give up psychology altogether. So I thought maybe there's a way that I could capture the wisdom and knowledge that I have from not just eight years of training, but also what is now a couple of decades of practice and put it out to people that could benefit from that and people that perhaps can't afford therapy. And so I started putting my work out online, which was a huge step for someone that didn't even have a Facebook profile at the time. And here we are, here we are about five or six years into doing that now. And I managed to get approached by a publisher who said, would you like to write a book? And I said, actually, yes, please. I really would. And I am just editing my sixth book, which will be out in June next year. And now I sell courses online and I do work like this that doesn't really feel like work. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So inspiring because I think 
Sometimes we just have to take a few wrong turns to get to where we are. And I have a dream life coaching program. And last night I was sharing that now I am starting to talk in my public speaking about the Kiki K story and how I got through that dramatic time. Like now it's actually a resilient talk, really. (laughs) Because that's what it's all about. And resilience is good in many areas, not just business. Sometimes we just have to have a few failures or a few wrong turns, and then that will get us where we want to be. But it takes a little while. And, and when you're in the middle of that and not knowing, that's the most frustrating part, isn't it? I absolutely agree. I call it the middly bit when you're too far away from the start line to see where you've come from, but you're too far away from the finish line to see where you're going. It's just such a destabilizing area to be. And yet I honestly believe that we are able to align ourselves with who we want to be in the life we're trying to create even more if we find the resilience to be able to stay there. Because I don't know about you, but the people that I see that perhaps don't reach their potential or keep themselves limited are the ones that give up in that middly bit, the ones that don't actually find the courage to keep going, even though they're not quite sure what's around the next corner. Absolutely. And I always say to the people who are thinking about big dream they've never done before and not sure if they can do it or if they have what they need to get there. But I always say, if you work on that every single day, without doubt, you will get there. But it might just take a little bit of time because we need to learn and we need to fall a few times. So yeah, I think that will be really inspiring for listeners to hear, to have heard your story. I really agree with you that sometimes it's about practice, but it's also about taking the leap, even when you don't know how it's going to work out. And Honestly, some of my decisions were made for me because I made poor decisions for my mental health and physical health prior to that. Burnout made the decision for me that I was giving up clinical practice. I didn't want to. I had to because I'd push myself too far. And I wouldn't recommend that people do that. But also what I now know is that that taught me so many things that have shaped what my life looks like today. And I think that's what you're saying about Kiki K, right? You can't be where you are today without having gone through that previously. So I'm the same as you. I don't look back and go, oh, I shouldn't have done that or I should have done it differently. I look back on that and go, that allows me to be in a place of ever more tightening alignment with the life that I'm trying to live rather than looking back and going, I'm a failure. I mean, I talk about it as failing because it didn't look the way that I thought it should look at the time, but ultimately I don't wish it never happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, where I am today is like, I I have a new business that I know exactly what I want to do with that business. And I know exactly who I want to work with. And I know exactly how big I want to because Kiki K became so corporate and I'm an entrepreneur. So I don't want I don't want that. And I went for a walk this morning and before the podcast, I was walking, thinking about the conversation we're going to have. And I was just thinking, I just love what I do. Like talking about habits <laughs> for an hour, like that's just, and that's my job. I just, I'm so, so I think for anyone listening, it's just really to keep going. And if you have some failure, I don't really call it failure until you give up. So it's more about learnings and then you just stand up again and you keep going. And often the difficult things is what we can help others with, like what you're doing now. So let's get into talking about your book. So I loved every chapter and I loved everything in there. So obviously want everyone to read the book, but let's just start with 
self-sabotage. Why, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Because it works. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work to get us where we want to go, but it works in the moment. So human beings are incredibly adept at being able to avoid discomfort. And self-sabotage is anything that you do in the present moment that gets in the way of you of what you want to be doing or what you should be doing. So we could call it avoidance, but uh, self-sabotage is avoidance on crack. Okay. So <laughs> everybody does a little bit of avoidance sometimes. And generally that's not a problem. You can procrastinate a little bit. It's fine. You can Netflix a little bit. You can binge a bit. It's fine. But if you do it so often that it actually gets in the way of the direction that you want your life to go, then where you could consider that as being in a state of self-sabotage, which is that you're choosing short-term relief of discomfort rather than being able to accept discomfort in the service of growth. Love that. Are you there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you, I thought you disappeared there for a second. Sorry. No, I just finished my sentence very suddenly. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, oh, oh, perfect. Um, So, um, so when we when we um, do so, so when we realize so I think we all have that in in different areas certainly I have that in certain areas where I'm uh, not as strong as in others what do we what is the first step to kind of obviously the first step is awareness but I think we all are aware until and we are aware while we're doing it but then there will come. A stage where we just be like a bit fed up with it. So what are the steps that we need to take to kind of get out of that and perhaps start with awareness, but then where do we go from there? I love that, that we kind of get a bit sick of it. Liz Gilbert says, she has a quote and I'm quoting this imperfectly, but it's something along the lines of, I've never seen anybody change until they get sick of their own bullshit. And I do. I think that's what happens when we self-sabotage to the point where we get so incredibly frustrated with ourselves. And generally what happens is we can sometimes end up in an emotional hole of sorts where we feel hopeless, we feel helpless, we feel like change is impossible. And then we shift into, well, I can have more pain from not doing the thing that I wish I was doing, or I can just try. And That step, that bridge from where you are to where you want to go is built by knowing what your values are. So values are a bit different to goals. And I guess goals are the more sexy way of speaking, especially in Western society. So we often talk about what you're achieving, whereas values are more about how you're living on the way. So I want you to think of like values as the direction that you're heading, let's say you're heading north and goals, the roads that you'll drive on, the mountains that you'll climb, the rivers that you'll cross along the way while you're heading north. So this bridge is being able to connect with what is truly important to you, what you want to stand for and who you want to be. The quickest way that I can help listeners to access what their values feel like is to imagine that you are looking back on your life today from the perspective of your 80-year-old self, should you be lucky enough to live that long. 
So imagine that you're your 80-year-old self and you're looking back on how you're living today. How does that feel? The better it feels, the more aligned you are with your values. The more discomfort you feel, the more out of alignment you probably are with your values. Now, it's not to say that your values don't exist. It's just that you've gotten off track towards respecting them and honoring them. I love that. And uh, you know what I also loved in your book? You said that we can arrive at our values by working out what we don't want. And when I was looking, when I came to Australia, I was whinging and complaining and I just was really, I was not sure what to do with my life. And I knew what I didn't want. I didn't want to drive too. So I was working in a workplace that I didn't enjoy. And I knew that I didn't want that. So so my first thing on my little list of dreams was to drive to work on a Monday and absolutely loving it. I'm not driving because I'm working from home now, which is so nice for an introvert. But as I said earlier this morning, I was just like, I cannot believe that I get to do this. So I think that's a really good way as well to write down, as you said in your book, working out what we don't want and then turn that around to what is the opposite of that. I agree. And I just want to add something there because sometimes what we want changes with the season of our life. So I think it's important to understand that what works for you today might not be what works for you in a year's time or five years time. What worked for me in my 20s or what I was capable of doing in my 20s is very different to what I want to be doing and how I want to be spending my energy now that I'm in my 40s. So those things, the way our energy resources are distributed will impact what you want to do and what you're capable of doing. So I think it's important to also understand that you're allowed to have flexibility. You're allowed to be okay with commuting, I don't know, an hour and a half to get to your dream job for 10 years until you decide that that commute doesn't work for you anymore. I'm the same. I work from home. So whenever I have to drive and I'm in traffic, which is rare, I'm in traffic that is part of the kind of the daily commute or the nine to five, so to speak, it kind of gives me shivers. And I think, oh my goodness, how do people do that every day? But the thing is, some people love it and that's okay. It's just about knowing what works for you and what works for you best right now for the season of life that you're in. Yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think it's good to do values valuation once a year because I think you do. You definitely change when you have a child, like without doubt. That's a program right there, though, values valuation. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I think one of my dreams is to get fitter every birthday. And when I started that, you know, I didn't take it too seriously. But now I'm like, actually, I really want that. Like, I really want to become healthier and fitter. I just feel like the healthier I am mentally and physically, then the more dreams I'm able to tick off in my lifetime. And that certainly changed because, you know, I've always been to health and wellness, but it's really shifted, I think, in the last couple of years for me. So yes, I think everyone had to have a little values valuation once a year. (laughs) Oh, I totally agree. And I'm also taking that inspiration with me into 2023. Thanks very much. I'm so grateful for birthdays because I have friends who are no longer around. So I never complain that I'm getting older. I'm seeing it as being wiser and I'm just so grateful to be alive. I'm an introvert, so I often spend birthday during the day. So I have children, so I'll do the morning with them and then they go to school and then I have a day on my own. I often reflect on the previous year and then what I want for one year ahead. And it's such a beautiful thing to do. And the healthier we are, the more we can achieve for sure. 
I definitely agree about the anniversary element and being able to use that as a prompt to reflect on how we're living, not just what we've achieved up until that point. And I think there's this Western kind of conditioning that there is such a thing as a life timeline. There's not, by the way, but it's very easy to believe that there is, that you should be married by a certain point, that you should be married at all, that you should have kids by this time, that you should have this type of job or this type of income or be driving this type of car by this time. And those things don't actually exist. The media makes them exist around us. And I think the, that practice of reflecting enables you to come back to go, what is actually meaningful for me? rather than what am I doing because I think I should be doing it because I'm allowing someone else who's not me to dictate the choices I'm making about where my life is heading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in your book, you say that the foundations for changing unhelpful habits to helpful ones are your reasons why. And I'm a bit of a nutcase when it comes to habits. Like I like to really challenge myself. So I do all sorts of weird things. And that's why I decided to do a habit club because I used to call my friends and start a messenger group and just say, hey, for the next 66 days, we're going to run every day or, or yoga every day or whatever. So yeah, I just dragged them in. And then uh, in the end, I was like, actually, I should probably invite people who actually want to do this. So I have a new group of friends in my habit club, which I love. So anyone in my little club, they do all sorts of changes, whatever is relevant for them. So everyone decides their own thing. But one of the things that we encourage them to do and that you are encouraging in the book as well is why you're doing this. And I have a little document called Why Am I Doing This? whatever that is, what I'm changing. So I did a year no alcohol bet with someone. I love wine. So it was a bit of a challenge for me because I just love a glass of wine every now and then. And then I did a year and actually ended up being three and a half years. But because I did a bet with someone who was going to quit smoking, so I didn't really want to do the wine, but I had to do something that was difficult for me. So I had to read this document every morning and every night to really understand. First, I didn't want to lose the bet. And secondly, I wrote all the benefits of no drinking and instead of feeling a bit lousy every now and then, what do you do instead? And that adds to your life, etc. So talk about the reason why, why we need to do that in terms of um, changing our habits. So what happens is those reasons why act like your anchor. And the reason why it's helpful for you to have gone back to those reasons daily probably became easier over time, I'm imagining. But at the beginning, it can be incredibly difficult to not reach for the habit that perhaps feels indulgent or perhaps feels out of alignment with what you actually want to be doing is because we forget those reasons. We forget the benefits. We forget that on the other side of doing the self-supporting habit rather than the self-sabotaging habit is a dopamine hit that's even stronger than just reaching for short-term comfort. And so those reasons why actually act as the foundation. They um, help you to be able to stay connected to the other side of the habit. Because so often we, we literally just see what's happening on the next 30 seconds. Like, oh, I need a coffee right now. I need caffeine. I need something that's going to make these next couple of minutes easier. I fall into that when I'm writing a book. I'm like, oh, if I'm going to write the next paragraph, then I'm going to need a coffee to do it, right? And so what happens is we're looking for that short-term comfort to get through just this bit that requires us to become uncomfortable. Being able to connect with your reasons why helps you to remember why 
being able to accept that discomfort is worth it and in fact brings ever more benefits than the self-sabotage will ever will. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what I was reading or listening to something, but often when we are, and I can't remember where it was, it doesn't come to me straight away, but anyway, it was something about often when we procrastinate, I'm very good. And if you've written a book, I'm sure you can relate to this, but my desk was like shiny because I just tidied everything. I did everything. It's funny because my partner helped me a lot with my book. So I would write something and then I would give it to him. And then when I passed it on, I was like, Oh, so good. And then I saw him vacuum and I'm like, are you procrastinating? <laughs> if you want to have a decluttered house and a clean house, write a book. <laughs> oh, I totally agree. My house is never cleaner than when I have a manuscript to work on. <laughs> I love that you've been able to make the connection and you've probably done this in your habit club that the quicker you just do the thing, the quicker you get the dopamine fix. But also that has another function and it's worth us talking about, I think, because it helps us to be able to make use of the willpower that we have available. Now, willpower is, think of it like a bucket of energy that you have access to each day. And the maximum amount of willpower that you have access to is obviously in the morning before you ask or drain that bucket by doing hard things. So if you wake up in the morning and you do the hard thing, you're doing it with the maximum amount of fuel available via your willpower. If you procrastinate and convince yourself that you will write in the afternoon, then the chances are that your willpower will be way too low by then anyway, and it won't get done. The way this might change is if your circadian rhythms operate differently. So for most people, they will generally wake up with maximum willpower and then lose it as the day goes on. But for people who are afternoon people or come alive at night time, then it can work the opposite. And I do want you to respect your circadian rhythms. But the other thing to think about is the more you ask of yourself before you do the hard thing, the less likely you are to actually have the willpower available to do the hard thing because you've used it up already. I can so relate to that. So I'm doing a fun challenge at the moment, which is 100 days of running, but I already have done. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun, Christina. So we have different ideas of fun. <laughs> it's not fun. It's That's what I'm doing it. <laughs> like every single time. And I think I did run 152 yesterday or something like that. I can never keep it up. And every single day is a struggle. But it's so funny because most of the time I do it in the morning because I'm a morning person and it suits me. But if I don't, then it's so much harder. Like, because I'm doing this kind of, I, I need to do it daily. And I did it with a couple of friends up to 100. And now I kind of thinking I'm just going to, keep it going. And I know that I have to do it. So I, w- I know that I will do it. But that run is 300 times harder. And I often think about why is it so hard at night? So it must be that willpower because it's just much, much harder. Absolutely. So there are ways that you can drain your willpower bucket fast. And there are also ways that you can build it up again. But it's worth understanding that you can't just push through and keep going. For most people, you'll get to the point where the bucket is empty and the only thing that will fill it is rest and some kind of rejuvenation. So your willpower bucket is drained more quickly if you multitask, if you have a lot of difficult decisions to make during the day, if you're tired, if you haven't eaten well and just haven't fueled your body generally, and if there's a lot going on in terms of stress. So the higher those things are, or the more intense those things are, the quicker your willpower bucket will empty. And 
the way you can actually fill it up during the day, you may not ever fill it back to where it is first thing in the morning when you wake up, but the way you can at least maintain stores in your bucket during the day is by taking small breaks, is by making sure that you eat well and that you move your body and you stay hydrated and also making sure that you single task with things that give you that hit of dopamine. So one of the things that your run does in the morning, despite the fact that it's still hard on day 152, and it will be hard on day 153, is that after that, you get this massive shot of dopamine that says, oh my goodness, Christina, you've done this for 153 days. You don't love it when you do it, but look at what you just did. And that shot of dopamine means that Things that otherwise would be hard don't even seem that hard because you just did that amazing thing. So what you're capable of doing brings more vitality to what you're going to do after that. So it's almost like your bucket is getting bigger. Every day you run, your bucket's not staying the same size. You're actually expanding it because you're doing things that are hard, which is proving to your brain, you're building neural pathways in your brain that say, I have evidence that I can do amazing things. And people that get stuck in habits of self-sabotage, particularly habits of self-sabotage that shift them away from the identity that they want to create for themselves, is that their bucket often contracts, it gets smaller because they lose trust in themselves to be able to do those things what you're doing is you're actually widening your bucket. Yeah, I can so relate to that. Thank you. That was really helpful. So for anyone listening, how do we decide what habits to tackle first and how do we sustain new habits? Good questions. And the answers that I'll give might be a little bit disappointing. Let me just preface that because my answer is always, it depends. I'm not a psychologist who loves sound bites. You know, I could give you the sound bite answer, but I just don't think it's helpful for listeners because we're all individuals. And so first and foremost, I want you to honor the individual nature of habits and the individual nature of what you're creating for yourself. So the first thing I want you to think about is there are two ways that you can make this decision. You could make the decision by looking at the habit that is causing you the most pain and discomfort. So the one that's pushing you the furthest away from who you want to be. And you can attack that one first, because it's actually going to give you the biggest flow on effects to other habits. Or if you're feeling overwhelmed and your resources are low to begin with, sometimes that's not the best time to be attacking a huge habit. So when we're talking about habits of self-sabotage, you've got to remember that the reason those habits stick around is because they're protecting us from pain. They actually work. They're a coping strategy. So it's really important to not criticize yourself for doing that thing because you do it because it helps you to cope. It helps you to get through the day. The only thing is the more you do it, it's actually pushing you away from who you want to be. So if you're overwhelmed already, and perhaps you're managing some low mood or some anxiety, and you don't feel like you've got all the energy in the world to offer this, then it might be helpful to start with something really small so that you don't overwhelm your nervous system even more and build up with tiny steps towards that habit so that you're helping your brain gather the evidence that you're actually capable of change. Now, you are capable of change, but if you've lost trust in yourself, it can be really difficult to believe that. This is how we lose self-belief. We lose confidence in ourselves because we 
become disconnected from the evidence that we can do hard things. Now, you can look back on times where perhaps you're like Christina and you've gone three years without drinking and that was a huge thing for you, but that was maybe five years ago and it doesn't feel as real today as what it did back then and you're thinking, I'm not the same person, I couldn't do that again. I'm betting you can. The thing is you might just have to do it in a graded way so that you don't overwhelm your fear system and end up immobilised because you're asking too much of yourself. And then to be able to sustain the habits that you're making change with. Look, I'm always a fan of what psychologists call the science of small wins, which is to do these small steps and then build on the small steps once those steps become easier, because it helps your brain to be able to go, okay, I can actually do this because it's not too much. So you don't wake up in the morning and decide that you're going to drink four litres of water a day. Instead, you go for one glass a day and then next week, go for two glasses a day, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying you have to drink four litres of water. I'm just being extreme in that example. But what you want to be able to do is to not start off a habit change process by making the habit so incredibly extreme that it overwhelms you altogether and you feel like you've failed by day two because it wasn't sustainable. Because we're talking to Christina Carlson, I need to put a caveat in here, right? Because obviously... Christina, you're like my brother. My brother, um, he started stand-up paddleboarding and within six months he decided that he was going to train to be the first person to cross Bass Strait on a stand-up paddleboard. So I think you and him would get along quite well. There's this kind of courage but also this testing, like am I capable of doing that? And he really loves that as well. He did succeed but on his second attempt. Doing things like that is really amazing and what it does is it challenges your brain to get outside the limitations of yourself. And some people respond really well to something like that. Christina, you're one of these people, but you're also practiced in habits, right? So your brain has a lot of evidence that you can test yourself and what you're capable of impresses you. You know, it impresses your brain and goes, wow, this dopamine hit that I get from doing this is priceless. Now, if you've been in habits of self-sabotage for a long period of time, you might not have access to the same evidence in your brain, which means it's difficult to be able to land on something like that. So I really encourage you not to test yourself with something extreme and instead to go for something small and succeed at that first and then build upon it. But if you are like Christina, where big goals actually really pique your interest, sometimes they can be, they can feel so inspiring that it lights you up, then go with it. Because sometimes Cold turkey for some people, a small percentage of people does work. And it's that leap that gives you a huge shot of dopamine to begin with that allows you to capitalize on that to keep going. But it's not for everyone. So I guess in a nutshell, what I'm saying is what do you know about yourself? What kind of season of life are you in right now? How much energy do you have for this? And when you take all that data into consideration, How do you feel like you need to move forward? I love that. And um, just for the record, on the things that are difficult for me, I start so small. So when I started running many years ago, (laughs) I started running one minute walking too. So I started really, really slow. And I do that with all my habits. Like I'm more about creating the habit versus doing that big thing. So for anyone who wants to declutter, often if you have a 
cluttered environment or a house or something, it just feels really overwhelming. So I always say, just start with two minutes, just do one thing. And then the next day you might do another two minutes and, you know, two minutes might become 10 minutes and then the 10 minutes might become 30 minutes. And all of a sudden you just tackle a little bit each day. And that's really how I do it. So I'm probably not like your brother who will compete, like will never compete. (laughs) Perhaps what we were talking about is the results of your habit rather than the building of the habit itself. And that's what I really encourage you to do is to focus on the actual development of the habit because it sounds like a lot goes into the creation of your habit then. And then what we get to talk about is how many days or how many years you did it for rather than, well, what did it look like at the beginning? Because I think sometimes we can get quite extreme in what it should look like in order to be acceptable. And this can happen for perfectionists. So they decide that they're going to overhaul their diet plus take, I don't know, 16 vitamins a day plus drink four liters of water plus exercise for an hour and a half every single day. And If you wake up and you do that for Monday and Tuesday, you'll be exhausted by Wednesday and then decide that you've failed. That's not how habits are sustainable. So when we're talking about walking for two minutes and running for one, that kind of habit creation creates a foundation that you can actually build upon without exhausting you to the point that you fail within a couple of days of trying to start. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I do lots of different challenges. So sometimes I do like push up challenge and then I just do one a day and then people who are really fit, they laugh. And then other people like, that's just no point doing one. I'm like, yeah, 365 push-ups in one year is better than zero. (laughs) And it's about actually just doing it because often it's the starting bit that is really difficult. So often when I did that, I might just do another two or maybe I do 10. And with everything that I do, I start really small because often habits that you want to change are things that is difficult for you. So then make it easy. So that's really inspiring to hear. So thank you for sharing that. And the other thing that makes a difference, Christina, which you've already landed on, I think, is the reason your habit club exists is because you already know that habits are more likely to stick if you have a support community around you. And if you're mixing with the wrong crowd, like you just mentioned, like the fit people that go, it's not even worth doing one push up. Like that's just stupid. If you're surrounded by people that understand that you're creating a habit and they back you and they encourage you, it can be so incredibly powerful to be able to keep going because they're the ones that recognize that small progress is progress. And if you get stuck in this idea that it only counts if it's big progress, then you miss all the benefit because the big progress is more likely to lead you to burning out, whereas the small progress is going to lead you to 365 push-ups. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the support crew, I think, is everything because this, I did this running challenge, supposed to be 100 days. I just kept going. But I did this with a friend and I would never, ever, because I flew from Sweden to Australia, 30-hour flight, really bad connections. So I ran before, like I got up at 5 a.m. and ran at Copenhagen Airport. And then when I landed in Melbourne, there's just no way I would even have considered 
going outside for a run. And even my son, when I said, so I decided to do this because my girlfriend started it and I was really inspired by it. So I thought, I'm going to start that when I get back to Australia. This was, you know, in summer in Sweden. And then I thought, no, I'm actually going to start it here because it's such a beautiful native summer. I think I'm just going to start it here. And then my son said, well, you can't because you're going to fly home. And, I said, and then I looked at it and I was like, no, I actually can fit it in if I get up early. And he said, yeah, I get that you will do it in the morning because I love mornings. But when you land, like you don't even want to talk to anyone. Like, why would you go running? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's see. And then uh, so as soon as I got home, it was cold in Melbourne, dark, rainy, just no way. But then I just, because I did this with a friend and obviously I reported it back to the Habit Club, just really made all the difference because you're not just doing it for yourself, then you kind of feel like you are part of the group. So that really worked. (laughs) We could just go on and on and on about habits. It's one of my passions for sure. I just want to ask a couple of shorter questions, but one before we do, how do we actually get back on track when we've gone off track? So this could be by our own that we're not doing it, but it could also be that we are unwell or something difficult happens, you know, someone passes away or a breakup of a relationship or whatever that is difficult. So how do we then get back on track? It's a really good question because I think that understanding that getting back on track is part of the habit process helps you to understand that it's not about failing. So the habit doesn't have to be a clean streak of 100 days or 30 days or whatever you've decided that you want to do in order to be successful. Perhaps you got COVID during it and you're out for a couple of weeks The getting back on track, if you actually see that as habits require me to have a process to get back on track, then you can understand that when you're off track, you're not failing. This happens to everyone. And instead, if you've got strategies to get back on track, then you're still making progress because the progress in and of itself is recommitting to yourself and to your habits. That is actually part of the process. It's like saying, you know, that fitness is about how much you can lift or how far you can run. Actually, no, fitness is also about how much you're sleeping, what you're putting on your plate and what you're doing to look after your mental health as well. There's so many different things that actually go into this. So with habit creation, it's also about getting back on track. Now, to be able to get back on track, the first is to recognize that you're off track and not to make that mean something. So (laughs) I know a lot of people who are very attached to the outcome that they've been creating and thinking, oh my goodness, this is great. I've actually done it for four days in a row and then something happens and they decide that it means that they have failed or they're not good enough or there's something defective about them that means that they've got off track, especially the people that make a decision about their ability to change. Like obviously I'm a hopeless case if I couldn't even sustain it for five days or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Or even for one day, if people start off well in the morning and then slide off track in the afternoon. The people that succeed with habits are the people who can get back on track quickly and not make those little deviations mean something negative about their process. So instead, I want you to change your lens around how you're looking at this and see the deviations off track or off course as part of the entire journey. So I talked about flying earlier. Sometimes when you're flying, you have to continually change your compass direction 
to account for the wind because the wind pushes you off track slightly. And so as you're actually flying towards your destination, it might not look like it's a straight line because you have to account for these little deviations and perhaps you need to work around weather or perhaps you need to stop here and get fuel. The same happens for you. Perhaps you need to rest for a while before you get back on track. So don't make it mean something that it doesn't actually mean. And instead, once you're aware that you're off track, bring yourself back on track by starting the process again. Because depending on how long you've been off track for will depend on where you need to start. So Christina, if I can use your example of how you started running with two minutes walking, one minute running, let's say that someone passed away and then you got sick. And while you're dealing with all of that, you didn't run for three months. So we're not just talking about three days off track where you could probably go back to the same process. Maybe you'd gotten up to 30 minutes of running it by that stage. Once you've been off track for, say, three months, your body might need to start again at two minutes off, one minute on. Now, it depends on what the habit is that you're doing. You might It might just be a habit of drinking water, you know, but I would encourage you to be able to go back to the level of the habit that you need to then get back on track. So sometimes that means going back to the start, but understanding that going back to the start capitalizes on the neural pathways that you've already been building. I certainly do that like in the past. Like that's why I run because I don't find it really easy. (laughs) So I often go back to the start. But for me, it's not about, you know, if I run 5Ks or 10Ks or one, like every second day I run only for 10 minutes because I don't want to have any injuries. So I do one little bit longer, one short. And everyone, as soon as I talk about this, people always say, how long do you run? And I'm like, it's not about that. There is a minimum that we had to do. So we don't just say that we're going to run three meters to the letterbox and back. So it is a minimum of 10 minutes or 1.6, I think we decided. So so every second day I just run for 10 minutes and then I walk the rest because that's kind of my rest day. But for me, it's actually not about that. And it's not about speed and I'm not competing with anyone. And even if people say I want to run with you, I'm like, actually, I don't want to run with anyone because I, I just want to be on my own. So for me, it's a mental thing more than anything. And I think just to do something, whatever that is, it could be, we talked a lot about running today, but it could be journaling. And, you know, when you start writing, you you can have writer's block or whatever labels that we put on it. But it's really just about doing a little bit each day. And some days are running really smoothly and some days are not. And that's part of life. It absolutely is. And that goes for all habits that we develop. If you want to develop the habit of writing, writing is my job now. That's my, that's what I do. I still don't love writing. So my writing is exactly the same as your running, Christina. Every time I sit down to write, it's hard. I don't ever get to a point where it comes easily. I wish I could say that it did come easily, but it doesn't. I do it because I signed a contract that says that I will deliver a manuscript on this date. What I do love about it though, is I love the outcome. So I love capturing my work in a way that is financially accessible for people that can't particularly attend therapy or afford to attend the privilege of therapy. But I also love that it forces my brain to go, what do I know and how do I put this down in a way that's accessible? So the discomfort of doing the labor is worth it for me because of what I get out of it. And the same goes for you. You get time to yourself. You get to know that your body is thriving and you also get to know yourself and what you're capable of. This is all part of the habit. It's not about exactly what you do. Some days I sit down and I write nothing. And that is part of the process. 
sitting down and staring at a blank Word document for five minutes or an hour is writing. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh, we can talk forever about habit <laughs> and we'll have to get you back on the podcast and I can't wait to hear and read first and then talk about your next book. But before we finish up, I'd love to ask you a couple of shorter questions and that is, have you got a morning routine? And if yes, what is it? Yes, I've got a morning routine that I want and I've got a morning routine that is present currently because I'm recovering from my first bout of COVID. So my morning routine right now is sleeping for as long as I need to sleep to be able to just rest my body and get back to where I want to be. And then the morning routine that I will return to is I have three dogs, one who's 13, one who's 10 and one who's nine. And my nine-year-old Irish setter loves going for walks. The other two are a bit too old and have arthritis, but I love getting up in the morning and walking with him really early and there's something about hearing whip birds and seeing the sun come up that makes me feel like that's all that matters in life. And so my morning routine is around connection, actually. It's connection with myself and connection with life, but the very basics of life. Yeah. I'm an early morning person and often people say, oh, I can't do that. And I'm like, once you get out and being connected with nature, I just feel like there's just nothing better. There's nothing quite like starting your day at that time because you get so much more done before the world starts. And I really love that because I'm an introvert as well and I'm easily overwhelmed with stimulation around me, whether that be emails dinging in my inbox or just appointments in my calendar. And getting up when the world's not yet whirring is actually, it's food for the soul. Couldn't agree more. So the next question is, have you got a favorite book? And I'm assuming you are a, an avid reader, so it's going to be a difficult, it's like naming your favorite child, which is a difficult thing to do. So just choose one or two that have made an impact on you. The first one would be The Trauma Cleaner by Sarah Krasenstein. She's an American-Australian. She lives in Melbourne and she wrote a book called The Trauma Cleaner, which is essentially a biography about a trans woman who had a very difficult upbringing, but then went on to become a trauma scene cleaner. And Sarah's use of language to understand the human condition is like I have never seen before. If we're talking about self-help type books, my favorite book would be Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things. And again, because of the use of language, so I do tend to be very careful about not reading self-help when I'm writing self-help. So when I'm actually writing a manuscript, I get concerned about unintentionally plagiarizing someone because I'm not sure whether the idea belongs to me or not because it's just found its way into my head. So I actually don't read self-help while I'm writing. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I often get the feedback that people always buy the books that are recommended. So thank you for sharing those books. Then my final question, that has been so inspiring. My final question is knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give to your younger self? So say that your late teens or mid-teens, whatever age you feel is relevant. I would tell her that the life that she's going to create will be better than her wildest dreams can even imagine. And it won't be for the reasons that she thinks it's, it needs to be. So. My nan passed away in 2018 and my pop died five months before nan and 
I was sitting with her in her nursing home room, which was beside his, the day after he passed, and she held my hand and she was crying at the time and she said to me, darling, in the end, all that matters is who you love and how you love them. Based on that alone, my life is better than I could ever dream because I love my people and I am so loved by my people and I get to do work that makes a meaningful difference in the world and for me that's priceless. Wow, what a beautiful way to end this. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, not just in your books, but also on this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm so excited about your next book, whatever that is. I'm not sure. Are you talking about that yet? No? I can't really no, talk no, about no, it yet. I'll talk about it when I'm allowed to. Perfect. <laughs> I will have you back for that, no doubt. But thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Christina. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wow, that was so inspiring. I almost forgot, as usual, that we were recording a podcast. As soon as I hanged up, I emailed her again to see if she would be our superstar speaker for my Dream Life Coaching Program because her expertise and knowledge as a psychologist and a habit expert is so perfect for our program. So I'm really excited. If you want to join us, go to yourdreamlovestartshere.com. I will also add a link in the show notes as well. I hope you are as inspired as I am to take action because we all know that you need to implement what you learn versus just listening. I can't wait to hear what you got out of this episode. Please share in the Dream Life Podcast Facebook group. I will link to that as well if you're not already in there. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you next week. Bye.